money Two bars on the show Show the boys stay ready Swamp rats, let's go It's the fantasy points Ain't no raggedy joint They mad at me scoring points But then they glad that they join One for the money Two bars on the show Swamp Rats, what's going on? Welcome back to the Two Bars Podcast. We had a little week off last week. Uh, I've been super busy doing a couple things. Scott's been working on his his big Magnus cope, uh, his big Madness Magnus article on uh, upside wins championships. Magnus Opus. That's that's what I was going for, Magnus Opus. Uh, but anyway, we're back now this week. And look, the week that we took off will be worth it because listen, we have a reunion here. Our guy, J.J. Zacharyson, the editor-in-chief, longtime editor-in-chief at Number Fire, is with us today. Uh, just some background. Like, Scott and I both got our first, like, legit writing gigs at Number Fire back, what was it, Scott? Like, 2013, 2014? It was uh, Masahiro Tanaka's rookie year, and I didn't know that because that was the first article I wrote. Really, I for, I I always forget that you're a baseball writer first, but yeah, man, it was uh, it was 2013, 2014, somewhere around there. Uh, JJ took us under his wing and kind of, uh, I think, definitely sculpted both of us into being better writers because I think we've both been really good with data and, and stuff like that our whole careers. But yeah, the writing bit definitely needs some help. Uh, JJ, good to get you on, man. This I think this is our first time we've podcast together in a very long time, so it's good to talk to you, man. Yeah, I, I've heard that that people have anticipated this more than the Friends reunion. This this, this show. Oh here. God! Well, hopefully this is way better than Friends because that. Show yeah, hopefully. Bad Seinfeld. <laughs> yeah, but bad Seinfeld exactly. No, it's good to talk to you guys. Uh, you know, we we don't get to do it you know as as often as we'd like. So it's fun to talk a little shop and and hopefully rehash some of those uh, hilarious articles that we all used to write back in the day. Yeah, I, I'd love to just like uh, tell my story a little bit so that. My start in the fantasy industry was I was uh, in college writing, you know, 20 page philosophy papers and I would do Adderall, not often, maybe like three or four times. But one of those times I just like neglected my paper and my buddy started his own sports blog and I would just write these, you know, 2000 word replies to his articles, just sort of like messing with him. He wrote an article that Derek Jeter was the greatest shortstop of all time. He's a big Yankee homer. And I wrote this like 2000 word response that no, Archie Vaughn was the greatest shortstop of all time. <laughs> and that was like later an article for, for number fire. But yeah, the first article I wrote for uh, on my own was like on a WordPress. I said like half jokingly that R.A. Dickey was going to win the Cy Young the year he won the Cy Young. I just did it as a joke. Like I thought he was funny. This like 40 year old knuckleballer, uh, I had like jokes that he was like a, a time magical time traveler. Like it made no sense, but because that happens, I was like, Oh man, like I, I, I definitely have a future in this. And so I reached out to JJ and I was like, Hey, uh, here's the two articles I wrote. Uh, would you have any interest in bringing me on? He was like, okay, sure. And uh, started writing and only baseball. And I was legitimately garbage at it. Like, I, I think I'm really good now. I think I'm pretty good at least. But early on, I was straight up trash. And, you know, I never made a dime working at Number Fire under JJ, but the it was invaluable. Like he paid me in, you know, time and tutelage. What's, you know, 
worth an indescribable amount to me now. Clearly, this is my full-time job. This is Graham's full-time job. He really just, you know, sat down, painstakingly held my hand, sent me edits, like asked for, here's what's wrong about this. Here's how to fix it. And it legitimately would take weeks and it like hours and hours of your time. And it must've been so frustrating to you because like, I legitimately was just not good. Like you, like people probably can't even imagine like how terrible I was in comparison to, to where I am today. And so that went on for, you know, maybe like a year where I just, every article would take like a week of rewrites. And then just at some point something clicked. I, you know, I started writing fantasy football articles and I wrote this article about Frank Gore and why he was a value. And it just like came out so easy to me. And JJ was like, Oh my God, you get it now. You, 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 you're turning a corner. This is great. And legitimately from that point on, it was smooth sailing. And I never looked back. It was just like, for, for those of you who are like really struggling, like you're taking Brazilian jiu-jitsu classes and you really stink at it, maybe you're just like me. Like, And this is like in so many things in my life where I'm just like a slow learner, but I always get to some point where it clicks. And then once it, it, it clicks, there's like this ex- exponential growth where like I'm immediately, okay, you know, top 15% or whatever, whatever I'm undertaking. That's really how it was in fantasy. Uh, me, and, me and JJ were talking about the Frank Gore article but put it in the Louvre. It's just, you know, put it in the <laughs> Hall of Fame, put it in the Louvre, just a masterpiece. They're just going to disagree, out that Jay? Yeah, it's print out that whole article and just slap it on the wall. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't disagree. So like it, it, from, from my perspective, you know, number fire was a startup at the time, like a, like a pure yeah. startup. I mean, like, like, fr- like we had, we had investors and we had, uh, you know, our, our structure of, we had uh, Nick Bonadio, our CEO who founded the company after going on, who wants to be a millionaire with Regis Philbin. And, and so, so when Regis passed away, you know, over the last year, it was a, it was like a big deal to number fire because Regis is like a, a, a reason that number fire exists uh, indirectly. Uh, but so Nick took that hundred thousand dollars that he won on there. And that was the seed money for number fire. I was employee like six or something like that, but we were, I mean, in, in total startup fashion, uh, we had no money, very little money. Um, and so we, uh, at the time, uh, we weren't paying any writers. And so I was going out and trying to find this balance of, you know, are you competent slash will you work for nothing? Uh, and it wasn't necessarily my choice. I should say that too. You know, I didn't necessarily want to have to do that. Yeah. Uh, now we pay and it's a, a totally different like system. And I'm not Fortunately and unfortunately, I'm I'm not really involved in the individual writing process uh, like I used to be because back then uh, it was really just me. I mean, you guys, we would chat constantly, right? right? They were like, we had emails back and forth, literally like hourly almost, it seemed like. And I was really just trying to like, it, it was it was very rewarding because I was just trying to, because we were both trying to solve the same thing, right? Like I always said that to writers, like if, if I ever came across too harsh in my feedback or anything, it was always me saying like, look, we're, we're trying to do the same thing here. We want good content on the site. That's my job, right? Is to do that. But it's also to help you get good content out there to then grow into something, something bigger and better. And, and, you know, the unfortunate part is that all of this happened, like, we had you guys, Chris Raybon was there at this, at that time. Uh, like we had such talented people and writers at the site, but we just weren't at a point financially 
to just like bring everyone on. And now I always think back, I'm like, man, imagine if that had all happened like two years later. And then we just like had that yeah. group and that cluster and everyone were to be able to, to hang out and just stick around. But regardless, it's just so rewarding to see everyone just kind of go out and, and do their thing and just crush it. Yeah. It's kind of like, I was like in Rotoviz to this in, in the same sense. It's like a farm system. Like back in those days, it was literally a farm system between, you know, us at number fire, like Reeves and Friedman and just so many countless others at Rotoviz. It's, it's been really cool to see, you know, the, the space grow in that sense. But, uh, what do you guys do? You're, you're like uh, Andy Reid. You, you, you know, you have your own coaching tree. <laughs> yeah, you really. Own, yeah. It's really JJ Zacharyson disciples. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's 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 crazy, man. Unfortunately, you know, I still got still got Brandon Gadula and Jim Sonis yeah. around with me. Uh so they they've stuck around, which is great. Um and but yeah, I mean I I wish I I really wish that we were we would have been able to just like st- keep everyone around, but that's just not the way that businesses go and the way that life works. But it's great that you know the people that were there were able to thrive elsewhere and just continue to grow for sure man um yeah well speaking of growth i mean like you and your podcast i mean you you guys have been you know your podcast is just like one of the best uh in the industry legitimately um like you know what's the transition been like for you just on a personal note before you get into fantasy stuff what's been the transition like for you for like you know Number Fire was obviously acquired by FanDuel. So like, what has that, what does that look like for you in, in terms of just like the content side of things and also just like your day-to-day stuff? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, uh, you know, a Lamborghini. Yeah, you're buying a freaking house on a lake now, man. That's what you're saying. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, FanDuel, yeah, you got that big, you got that big money now. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, with FanDuel, uh, it's just a little bit, I mean, it's not a little bit, it's a lot different because we're big, right? I mean, we're a massive, massive company. We go from, uh, I think when we were sold, uh, we probably had like 15 employees, full-time employees at Numberfire. Um, and now, you know, we have hundreds and hundreds. And then if you go to the parent company, et cetera, you're thousands and thousands of people that we're working with. And so it's just different, you know, before with number fire, it was like, everything was focused on the content that we were producing. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we, our purpose was just different, uh, because then it was like ad revenue driven and get as many clicks and views as you possibly can get. But the cool thing with FanDuel is that number fire's purpose is just different uh, because we're really there as like a companion for FanDuel users. Um, and so we can write cool stuff and produce cool stuff as opposed to like feeling like we need to be like a, a click farm or just try to gather those clicks. You know, it's not, mm-hmm. it's not nearly as we went through like ebbs and flows uh, in our infancy at number fire of like trying to balance, not being too clickbaity with being, you know, a good numbers driven analysis driven site. Um, but now we can absolutely do that because we want to be stickier as opposed to just like getting numbers in there and then, you know, letting them go. So that's been the biggest change, I think, is just like being able to not only have more resources around me to help and to, you know, hire people and to, uh, you know, help influence what we're doing uh, at a, on a larger scale from a content standpoint. But, you know, more importantly, from like what I'm creating, I'm able to like do the stuff that, uh, you know, I I uh, enjoy doing and that's diving deep into that all that stuff yeah yeah that's awesome um are you guys doing like you know with with legalized gambling becoming you know just like at the forefront and you know more states are are getting on board um are you guys like switching more into betting content 
on your side of things or is it still strictly fantasy? Yeah, I mean, on, on number fire, I mean, actually, every layer, it's definitely shifting more towards betting, and right. it has been over the last couple of years. But, but like, you know, I, there's obviously, you know, if you look at a Venn diagram, the, the, the two circles of season-long fantasy players or DFS players to sports yeah. bettors, there's, there's, there's some shade in the middle there, right? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's some overlap. overlap. So, yeah. yeah, so, so like, it's, it's cool that we have this thing that we're already passionate about with season-long and with uh, what have you and redraft and dynasty and all that, that we know that we can convert some people to being sports betters. Um, and so it still serves its purpose. Um, you know, am I doing, I'm doing a little bit more sports betting stuff, but I'm by no means like a handicapper now. Yeah. Gotcha. I, just out of curiosity, do you have a favorite format to play, uh, you know, best ball start set, DFS gambling? Like me personally? Yeah. Like what do you gravitate towards? Yeah. Probably I'm still, I'm still set. just like a, yeah, I'm still just like a traditionalist, man. I, I still just love playing season long, yeah, and sure. and I, I, I look, I and I, I love dynasty too. I mean, dynasty has been something that uh, over the last like five or six years, I've gotten like way more hardcore into. You know, I was playing it before, but not nearly as hardcore as I do now. And but I, I'll say this: I, I am extremely confident in my ability in redraft. Like I, I think that I am a very, very, very good redraft player. And I, you know, after playing with a bunch of people and doing well, et cetera. Like I know that I am dynasty. I'm above average, you know, like I'm not, I, 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 I the way that I've thought about the game has shifted dramatically over the last couple of years. Um, and you know, I, but like every redraft league that I do, I walk away and I'm like, yeah, that was a damn good draft. But then dynasty <laughs> leagues, I'll walk away and I'm like, that wasn't the best. That was, I could have done better there. You know? So I'm yeah. like, I'm not a hundred percent there in dynasty. I still, think that I give good advice and I still think that I have the right ideas and that the way that I prospect players is correct and all that. There's just so many different angles that you can approach the game from that. Uh, you know, I, I think that, that it's impossible to completely be this savant, uh, on the dynasty side, because there's just so much more to it. Whereas in redraft, it's, it's a lot easier to hone in on the different angles that you can hone in on to find those edges. Um, and so I just feel supremely more i mean just i mean i've played redraft longer too but i just feel a lot more confident and and i've seen the results within my my redraft uh, ability versus dynasty but i those two are still the two that I, I gravitate towards most yeah i'd say dynasty is you know so underrated so much fun like mm-hmm. most casual players which is you know 90 percent of fantasy football players like don't even know what it is but highly highly recommended it's so much fun gives you something to do uh, you know, during the dead periods, yeah. and just like a random aside to, to like listeners at home, uh, be careful. Like I, the, the one year I drafted 150 best ball teams, my start sit teams kind of sucked where I just had, you know, a bunch of high floor ADP beaters, but I didn't have like the correct superstars who really dominated. And, uh, you know, the first year I really yeah. got into dynasty, I noticed my start sit teams like we're a little too youthful, you know, you know, gambled a little bit too much on rookies, but yeah, yeah I, 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 I'm so with you. I kind of just like love every single format, you know, during the season, I'm all about DFS in the off season. It's only really, or so focused on dynasty and best ball. And, you know, they all bring something unique and their own strategy. And I think it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the cool thing that we get to do now, Scott, is I mean, we get to do whatever we want, you know, in terms of content. So I mean, seriously, I mean, we yeah. can, you know, we can kind of explore all that, but I'm with you, JJ. We don't have JJ cracking the whip anymore. 
Good God, man. I'm, I'm JJ. There's like so many emails back and forth between both of us where you're just like, I know you just want to like scream through your computer and be like, you fucking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no, like, I, I feel like, look, I feel like if nothing else, I, I hope that you guys could walk away and say that you had a self-aware editor, like yes. that I like. Like I knew that it sucked. Like I wasn't like like I like I'm not the most confrontational person in the world either. So like being in that role was so- somewhat uncomfortable at times too. But right. hopefully you guys didn't walk away being like this dude was awful. I hate this man. Terrible human. Uh, hopefully it was an okay enough yeah, experience. It's definitely not. No, good. you were you were legitimately the best in every way. You would just like hold my hand and like caress me. It's like it's not that bad. It's okay. <laughs> And then I went from you to Mike Clay, who, oh my God, he would just send back a list of, here's everything that's wrong with that. Fix it now. And I just, for an entire year of him editing my articles, I thought he hated me. And then I met him in person. He's like, oh, great job this year. And I'm like, yeah. what? Yeah, Mike yeah. is the what? nicest guy. The nicest guy. Yeah, Mike's like, like the yeah. nicest dude. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Scott, you mentioned something earlier, and this is probably a good part to start with. Like, best ball and season long is massively different and i feel like because best ball has gotten so much more popular there's a lot more like blurred lines between the two now right um one of the things i want to ask you about jj is you know onesie positions are way more important in best ball right because we don't have access to the waiver wire um and it's just way easier to replace or, or find replacement level players or even beat replacement level players off the waiver wire with streaming. You know, you've been uh, at the forefront of this for many years. Like I find it, I, I see so much content out now. That's like, um, you know, kind of treating quarterbacks the same in best ball as we should in season long, which I, I think is the complete wrong strategy. So in best ball leagues for you, just in general, like what, what is, what changes in your strategy? Cause you're the late round quarterback guy and, and we'll go deeper into, you know, some of the market stuff that's going on right now, but like in general, what's your strategy there? Yeah. I mean, I, I would say that like five years ago, it's different than what it is now. Um, you know, sure. I think that that's, that's key. And just be being an analyst uh, with stuff is that you, you see how things are, are going and trending and moving and you redo your analysis and you realize that you were an idiot at one point and you were wrong. Um, and so, you know, back in the day, uh, I would have told you that, uh, you know, there are a lot of quarterbacks that are giving you uh, fairly high ceiling games uh, that are giving you QB one performances. Let's just call it that. Uh, there's a lot of them that are doing that each and every week. And there's a lot of uh, a variation that we see week in and week out at the quarterback position. And then not only that, but on a season long perspective, there's a lot of variance as well. The, the, you know, how we're drafting these players, where we're drafting them and how they finish from a season long perspective at the quarterback position. And so as a result of that, you can sit there and say, well, if there's just a lot of general variance then you can just get guys who you know are going to be starters for 16 games and now 17 uh, starters for 16 games that uh, will give you some production and then you'll hopefully hit at some point. But I think what we found um, is, is that especially now in these days, um, you know, last year, what we saw even the year before that, just to a certain extent, um, the ceiling is a lot different than it used to be. Uh, the ceiling for these quarterbacks. And so it's not as easy to match, uh, you know, that kind of production, you know, last season, and we're going to get into this, I'm sure, but last season we have this crazy, crazy season at the quarterback position. um, And and it was a very predictable season as well. And it's no surprise that from a streaming perspective, you know, I do living the stream and we keep track of our picks each week. Me and me and my podcast co-host, Denny Carter, 
we keep track of our picks every week. Now, we don't have the benefit of picking up a guy and leaving him in our streaming lineup, if you will, each week, you know, because his, his uh, percent rostered is going to change and not be under that like one third mark that we look for uh, in terms of guys who are out on the waiver wire, like Deshaun Watson is rookie year. Like we streamed Deshaun Watson, but eventually he was rostered in too many leagues where we couldn't stream him anymore. So we didn't have that benefit, but even still, we're usually streaming like a QB six or so from like on a points per game uh, basis. Last year it was like QB nine. Uh, it was a lot more difficult to get that uh, replaceability in there at the quarterback position. So, um, you know, I do think that because you don't have that backbone in a best ball league and because the ceilings are a little bit different and look a little bit different, uh, it just makes more sense to feel more okay about taking on that cost uh, for, for some of those more elite guys. And, you know, like you said, the market's changing and things are, things are a little bit more dynamic than they used to be. And the opportunity cost and getting some of those quarterbacks isn't what it used to be where, you know, before at one point you were drafting the QB one at like in like round two where like, yeah, the opportunity cost is really, really high there. Um, but it's not nearly as significant as it used to be too, which makes it a lot easier. Yeah, for sure. Um, so there's a lot of ways I want to go with this, but one of the, let's start here. Like last year you mentioned it, you know, quarterback scoring was insane. I mean, it was total outlier year. There was like three guys between Allen. And if you include Prescott, Allen, Prescott, Mahomes, all of those guys posted like some of the best all time seasons in points per game. Right. What, what do you think drove last year's quarterback scoring? Um, like how, how have you explained that? And do you think that's a sign of things to come or is that just, you know, last year was, Hey, it's a COVID year and there's a lot of play. Yeah. So I'll let's like, let's walk through this because there's just so much to it. I think right. that, uh, you know, people don't always like think about and, and see, but Let's ask ourselves why late round quarterback has worked historically, right? So we know that we're only starting one quarterback. So that, so we know in a lot of leagues, there's an excess supply of the quarterback position because you're only starting one of them, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, scoring among quarterbacks historically has been fairly tight as well. Uh, and so what that means is that even the best quarterbacks, they're not giving you that significant of an advantage, um, uh, you know, uh, over a replacement level guy, even, you know, middle round QB ones historically have not mattered, mattered that, or sorry, middling QB ones have not mattered all that much, uh, from a fantasy perspective. Uh, and so that just made the position more replaceable. You know, you could realistically get guys off the waiver wire and then stream, or you could just hit on a late round quarterback. But then on top of that, uh, you know, I mentioned this earlier, we've generally sucked at predicting which quarterbacks are going to be good. If you look at uh, top 24 quarterbacks in ADP over the last decade, and you look at postseason result, the R squared between those two. So where you're drafting these guys and how they're finishing has been non-existent for a lot of the seasons that we've seen between 2011 and 2020. Uh, Last season, we finally saw that correlation jump, uh, but it it was virtually zero between 2013 and 2019. Uh, So that basically tells you that you could literally throw a dart at, at a quarterback draft board. And he had just as good of a chance to finish as the QB one as the actual QB one did uh, that you were drafting. There was just no, no predictiveness in ADP. And so we have to ask ourselves, you know, last season, uh, something shifted, something changed. And what changed more drastically than any other season was the rushing component, right? Like we we've known all along that rushing quarterbacks have been a cheat code in fantasy football. You know, Rich Rebar wrote the Konami code back in 2013. Scott's written a lot on this. We, we know that that mobile quarterbacks give you a cheat code in fantasy football. Um, it's just that this past year, 
uh, we saw more of them and we saw uh, a, a situation where as a result of that, the predictiveness of preseason ADP versus postseason result became uh, a lot stronger. Uh, and so, you know, if you were to break down what a quarterback does uh, in order to score points in fantasy football, they're either running the ball or they're throwing the ball. And if you and, and if you're throwing the ball, you need a lot of touchdowns to score fantasy points, right? That's that's they're 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 disproportionately weighed uh, in the passing side of things uh, in terms of scoring fantasy points at the quarterback position. Um, and we know that touchdown rate, touchdowns divided by attempts, fluctuates a ton year over year. So if historically we've been looking at these quarterbacks and they haven't and they brought a lot of variance, that variance is because of what they're doing through the air, not on the ground. The R squared among quarterbacks who've had 300 plus pass attempts year over year over the last 10 years, the R squared in touchdown rate is 0.04, but the R squared in rushing yards per game among that same sample is 0.72. So it's insanely more consistent when you're looking strictly at rushing production. Now we have all these rushing quarterbacks that are giving us this edge. uh, And so now they become more predictable, which makes it more difficult because the market's catching up on this makes it more difficult to then draft a quarterback late. And so I think everything came together last season where we had the right number of quarterbacks that gave you that dual threat ability and that dual threat upside. But then on top of that, we also had this pandemic season where, you know, you could say it doesn't matter, whatever, but I think it did matter. I think the pandemic season mattered. I understand that offensive holding calls we're, we're down this past year, which is going to help offenses. And that's probably going to remain consistent year over year. You know, I understand there's more play action and aggressiveness on fourth down, and that's going to help offenses. But at the same time, uh, we saw so remember at the beginning of the season, we saw so many overs hit to start the year. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that opposing quarterback, and we know that home field advantage was shrunk last year. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that opposing quarterbacks were able to dictate more at the line of scrimmage. Yep. And so when and offenses are the ones who are, who are at an advantage, uh, you know, on a football field because they know what's coming. And so last season, just like everything hit in the right way for these quarterbacks, this group of quarterbacks to really give you that significant edge. But there are things that happened last year that probably are going to stick around year over year. Yeah, I remember Scott and I used to have like hour long conversations like in July and August this time last year talking about, hey, how is the pandemic going to affect the games? Because I remember we both kind of came around to the fact that, yeah, early in the year, because, you know, there's no crowd noise, that's going to help offenses. There's less practice time for defenses. I mean, they've been cutting down on practice time for defenses in uh, training camp and and live action, you know, hitting in practice for years. Uh, You get the, you know, defenses require communication, right? You know, to kind of get on the same page. Um, That was just all cut last year. And that's why we saw early in the year, like you mentioned, there was overs just being crushed every single week, especially in the first like four to six weeks. I think that helped fuel it, but it was also just kind of like something that lingered over the heads of the, you know, the head of the full season. So yeah, I think, I think there's, it's, you know, two things like this has become more of an offensive league where the, the league is literally going away from, calling OPIs that are obvious, calling, you know, offensive holdings down. That's been going down for, you know, not just last year. It's been going down for yeah. years now. Um, you know, the game has changed to the point where, yeah, it's it's way more conducive to passing. And teams are – you also have this other factor that's coming in where teams are finally joining up with the analytical movement and passing way more on early downs and in closer games. So that's increased 
that's increased the passing production in general too. But yeah, I think, I think the defensive side of things weren't necessarily, that wasn't necessarily, it definitely matters. And it definitely, it wasn't necessarily like accounted for, I think early in the year. Yeah. And what's interesting about that too, is the only like comparison that we had for last year was, was like the, 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 yeah, the near lockout season, which was like 2011. And that year, the exact same thing happened. Overs hit at like a 70% rate or something like that. Uh, and, and we saw bigger passing numbers to start the year. I mean, even last year, though, you can look at a, most quarterbacks ended up seeing a decrease in production down the stretch. I mean, it 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 it, it shifted. I mean, Russell Wilson's the perfect example of that. But uh, it, it definitely shifted, uh, you know, as we as we went on with the season. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that that defenses were, were catching up um, and becoming more cohesive as a unit. Yeah. The thing with Russ last year though, man, is that like that defense was so bad to start the year. They had yeah, no yeah. options and then it was they, so bad. And then they finally got a little better in the back half of last year. And then, you know, Brian Schottenheimer did Brian Schottenheimer things and went to his turtle yeah. shell. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think, I don't know, just, it's so interesting looking back at last year. Cause it, it, it I do think at the end of the day, it's going to be an outlier year. Um, okay. So, we talked about, you know, just the, the general philosophy of late round quarterback this year, man, the market has, and you mentioned earlier too, that the, you know, last year, the ADPs were much more efficient, but still not great, but they were much more efficient this year, man, we've got Mahomes in round three or round four. We've got, you know, Lamar, Josh Allen, Dak, Kyler Murray, all in rounds five and six, um, just off the cuff. Do you think that's efficient or do you think it's kind of an overreaction to last year's scoring? I think it's efficient. I think if it were an overreaction, we would be seeing what we saw in like 2014, you know, just like those, those years, like 2011 to 2014, where like people were taking Aaron Rodgers in the second round. Right. And Mm -hmm. like, we're at least being competent enough here to, as a, as a collective to say that we know that quarterbacks inherently don't matter as much in fantasy football, but these guys are giving you a more predictable edge than what we've seen in the past. So we should give them at least a little bit of a boost. Um, and then, you know, if you, if you look at history, uh, where there are, where drop-offs occur and expected output at running back and wide receiver generally occurs like in that fifth round into the fifth and sixth round. Um, and so the opportunity cost then and getting those quarterbacks in that area is a lot less significant, which is which which is why I think we're seeing those quarterbacks go in that area is because people are like, oh, now I have to choose between Dak Prescott and Cortland Sutton, where there's like these question marks around this player. Yeah. Whereas before, you know, if it were Dak Prescott versus a second rounder, uh, you know, like Cam Akers or something, then then all of a sudden it's a much more significant opportunity cost involved and, and a lot uh, more difficult to to, t- to make that pick. So. You know, I think that it is pretty efficient this year. The thing this year, though, that I see that I haven't seen in past years, um, you know, and entering last year, I started taking middle round quarterbacks because of how efficient the market appeared because people just started to to value rushing more, it seemed like. Uh, this season, more than any other, there are like these different pockets at these different levels. Like usually, usually uh, the way that I have told people to approach a quarterback position is, if you're going to take one in the middle or early rounds, just get an early round guy and go all in. Just go big or go home, mm-hmm. uh, similar to tight end. Um, but but now there's like these these layers. Like you could realistically go after one of those elite guys in round five, or you could wait a little bit and go after Jalen Hurts, 
or you could wait a little bit and go after Ryan Tannehill, or you could wait a little bit and just literally throw darts at some of these rookie quarterbacks. And so this is the first time that I can remember where you actually have those kinds of options throughout your draft, as opposed to, you know, having these obvious ways to approach it. And I think that speaks volumes to how efficient the market actually is. That's a great way to put it because it is become it's become a lot more fragmented. I think that's really what it is. Is like you have just very fragmented yeah. tiers within drafts because Mahomes is usually like QB one nine times out of ten, and then right. you've got like that big group of the four, and then you got to wait a bit, and you you know you got three options round seven through eight with Herbert, Wilson, and Hertz, and then you go later. Uh, it's Tannehill. Like one one of the things I've been thinking about. Um, more and more. And I know you've, you've written and talked a lot about this on your own podcast is, is that running back dead zone is just like through rounds three through six. And I mean, you can extend it a little bit further, but really like, let's focus on like, you know, rounds three through six, there's just so many freaking landmines year over year between just normal, you know, positional churn between injuries and, and guys not getting the roles we expected, but just, you know, just generally just getting absolutely hammered in terms of value at those picks. I think that's, and this is something that I've had to change in my own strategy. Cause I'm, I've been with you for, you know, 10 years of playing fantasy football. I've always been one that I'm going to try to wait as long as possible for a quarterback. But this is the first year that I've really come around to like, Hey, and you know, rounds four or five, even if, even if it's, you know, I'm sitting in a spot where let's say I started with two running backs and a receiver and Lamar's on the board in round four. And I just don't like the board. It's a really sharp room, but there's not any quarterbacks off the board. I'm willing to go that route. Um, I, I think this is another, this is a great year for that because the, you automatically know in the back of your mind that that, that running back dead zone exists. You know what the bust rates are, right? But then you couple in the fact this year, that zone is awful. Like there's like two, I don't know how you feel about it, but I think there's like two or three backs that are like somewhat safe. And even then they're yeah. probably not all that safe. So I think this year is, is like an especially good year to kind of change up the strategy and, and really attack those quarterbacks in that range because it's really tough to feel comfortable about a running back in that range. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. It all, it obviously depends on what kind of ADP source you're looking at for the running back dead zone. I think if you're looking at more best ball ADP, uh, that a lot of people have done, you know, Jack Miller's done a lot of work over at like establish yeah. the run now and, and, and whatnot, uh, on the dead zone. And, and I, I, best ball ADP focuses a lot on rounds three to six. I have more traditional redraft ADP that I've gotten from my fantasy league. Um, and, the, the dead zone with what the work with the the data that I work with is more so rounds four through through six ish uh you know round three so so I, I last year I wrote an article on league winning like where we find league winning players and I define league winning as a running back who finished in the top ten and a wide receiver who finished in the top eight and the reason I use those parameters is because that's typically where we saw drop offs occur in 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 points per game uh you know after RB ten and then after wide receiver eight pretty arbitrary, but you needed to have a cutoff somewhere. Um, and, and if you look at uh, where these league winners are coming from, uh, you know, 55%, there's a 55% hit rate in round one for running backs, a 36% in round two, a 33% in round three. And then all of a sudden in round four, it's 11%. And then in round five, it's 14.8%. In round six, it's 13.5%. And round seven, it's 10.5%. So basically, you have you historically over the last 10 years, you've had just as good of a 
of a uh, an uh, odds, a chance of hitting on a league winning running back in round seven as you have in round four. And what that tells you is this is the dead zone, right? This is exactly what the dead zone is about is that, uh, you know, you're not getting these truly winning. I mean, you, you are at times, you know, like Jonathan Taylor last year, uh, but it's not that they're happening all that frequently. And then on the reverse side, the one piece of the, the, uh, the, the dead zone that I think it's overlooked a lot is that it's not just that the running back hit rate drops around that point. It's that the wide receiver hit rate increases or, or is very good, right? So if you look at wide receiver hit rates in terms of the league winners that I was looking at, top eight guys, uh, round one, you have a 70% rate. They're very, very safe in round one. 45.8% in round two, which is still pretty strong. And then round three hits, and it's 15.4. You actually have a better hit rate of finding a league winning wide receiver historically in round five than you have in round three. So what that tells you that is, is that in round four and five, it makes more sense to go after wide receivers and then, you know, foregoing those running backs, just given those historic hit rates. So uh, that's really what the, you know, the dead zone and the data that I've worked with says about the dead zone. And then, you know, to your point, what I was saying earlier you know, these elite quarterbacks are not being drafted in round two and three Mm -hmm. where those hit rates are significant, right? The hit rates are not significant in rounds four and five. And so it's a lot easier to take on that opportunity cost than for those quarterbacks in that area of the draft. When you cut, when you couple the hit rates, then you, you look at uh, the fact that these quarterbacks are going to be more predictable and that they do have that ceiling and they are giving you that edge. It does make more sense for all of those reasons to get quarterbacks in that range than it has historically. Yeah. It's not even a safety thing. It's also like an upside thing. Like, because if you think about it, like, you know, what are the chances Lamar or Dak or Kyler or Allen doesn't pay off in that range, right? They'd probably have to get hurt or, I mean, I mean, seriously, I mean, because like you mentioned earlier, rushing is way more predictable and it's way more sticky year over year. You get the you get the added in safety of okay from a roster construction standpoint I'm not even going to waste a pick on a running back here because I, I know what the downside is but I also have more upside on again from a roster construction angle thinking hey I, okay not only am I avoiding backs in this range when my opponents are still taking them I'm going to take a quarterback here and then gain two three four five six extra points per game that. At the court, at that onesie position that my opponents are not getting, so it's like a it's like a double whammy. I think the way leagues are setting up this year. Yeah, for sure. And the, the other thing too to keep in mind, you know, I, I've done a lot of analysis the last week. Uh, I mean, it spanned before that, but I published it this week on mm-hmm. sort of the middle middle round running backs. And the reason I focus so much on those middle round running backs, and I'm, I'm referring to round six through nine, really. Uh, but the reason I, I'm focusing so much on those is that that's where more league winning players come from at that position than the wide receiver position. The wide receiver position in that area of the, of the draft is usually kind of a dead zone itself. I think there was a, there might've been a Rotoviz article written about that this week. Uh, and so that, that round six through nine range uh, is a, is a good, good place to, to target your, the running back position. And so you can look at these historical bust rates and these, where, where these league winners come from to sort of shape that. And, and again, you know, in that four to six range is where, uh, the opportunity cost just really isn't that much different than what you're getting in the six through nine range. Yeah. So I, I mean, the, the way I've been trying to think about running back scoring and I'm like, <laughs> this is a podcast, so I'm going to try and draw it out in my head. But like, I think a lot of people think of scoring in a very like bell curve manner, but it's you, it's for running back specifically, it's way more stacked towards like the top 10% in terms of like win rate in those truly like league winning types. Mm-hmm. Then it really, really like steepens out 
flattens out as you go throughout the rest of the curve and then it drops off uh, past that. I mean, in general, like this is something we talked about with uh, Abib who, who won the FFPC back-to-back years, 2019, 2020 on a pro- podcast a couple of weeks ago. He was mentioning that, you know, those handcuffs that go in like past, you know, past the dead zone, let's, you know, talk about like Tony Pollard and uh, yeah. Alexander Madison. Those guys are so rarely worth that pick. Yes. It, it's, it's like in general, it running back is, is su- it's such a, it's such a difficult position for so many reasons. Cause there's so much randomness involved, but those running backs in that range, man, are, are basically worthless. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about, about handcuffing because I think you and I have talked about this in way in the number, number fire pass. I know you've written about it too. In general, like I think handcuffing is like the worst draft strategy you can take. You're literally yeah. betting against yourself. You know, you take, let's just say you take Zeke at five overall and you take Tony Pollard at around 10. Well, if Zeke stays healthy, and he pays off that cost, you're literally betting against yourself with your 10th round pick that you could be you know, spending on another position. Like it's, you know, we've talked this whole podcast about um, basically when to not take running backs, but like there is a very, I think limited player pool of backs that we should be looking at and, and avoiding those, you know, kind of not worthy handcuffs and the, the late rounds are included in that, that kind of dead zone discussion. Yeah. So there's so many layers to it too. Like, like I, so I did a study on running back handcuffs like four years ago, I want to say. Um, and, and in that study, it found that running back handcuffs just don't pan out very often at all. Number one, but number two, we don't even know who the running back handcuff is necessarily. Um, and then number three, when handcuffs do get an opportunity to see the field, they don't produce very well. And I think a great example is last year with Alexander Madison against Atlanta. Do you guys, I mean, I'm sure you yeah. guys remember that from a DFS perspective. Of course. Uh, yeah. And so everyone's in on Madison for good. I mean, look, there's logic behind it for sure. You know, game theory from a, from a percent owned uh, from an ownership perspective is a little bit different, but uh, you know, Alexander Madison steps in and Dalvin cook is a game script uh, not not a game script dependent running back. He's going to be on the field no matter what. Well, Alexander Madison, we didn't know regardless. Like we didn't know for sure how they would handle if the game got out. Well, the game got out of hand and Alex, Alexander yeah. Madison wasn't on the field, right? right? And so we have these pre- preconceived notions that like Tony Pollard would just be this absolute stud if Zeke went down or Alexander Madison would be this absolute stud if Dalvin Cook went down. But there's a reason that they're not elite running backs and that they haven't been viewed that way and they weren't viewed that way coming out of schools because that's not how teams use them. And because they're not, not to be like mean to them, but they're not <laughs> worthy of it. Right. Yeah. Like, like that's just not who they are. And if you look at the the running back handcuffs who have hit over the last 10 years, they're players that were drafted very, very late. Two of them came from Pittsburgh with James Conner and D'Angelo Williams. One of them, I wouldn't even say was a true handcuff experience. Cause it was the Le'Veon Bell holdout season, yeah, but you know, D'Angelo Williams comes in, he's he's a stud, he wasn't drafted high, and then the other one was Fred Jackson when C.J. Spiller was a first-round pick. And so we don't see these running back handcuffs pan out at a very high rate. And I actually, uh, I did an article uh, on the, I, I did a podcast on how to spot a breakout running back last year. I've done studies on how to spot a breakout running back a lot uh, over the last like five years. But I, I try to like re-up them every year and, and like look at things from a different perspective. And this year I, I published this uh, uh, spotting a breakout running back uh, study on my show on Monday. Um, and what I found 
uh, what was I think was really, really intriguing uh, because I focused more on those middle rounds, the six, the round six through nine, uh, because that's where we see these league winning running backs coming from at a higher rate than wide receivers. You know, there's this like, mm-hmm. like get running backs, get running backs, don't get running backs. Okay. You can get running backs again. Yeah, and, exactly. and that that's get running backs say, again yeah. Yeah. is in that, is in that round six through nine range. Yeah. Um, but a lot of people in that range are drafting those high end handcuffs. They're drafting the Tony Pollards, the Alexander Madison's, and they've done that for years. Ben Tate way back in the day. Oh, remember man. Ben Tate? Ben Tate, of course. Uh, yeah. Everybody so he, thought that was going to be like, a sweet backfield with him and Foster. <laughs> right. And we do that all the time. But if you look at hit rates, uh, and, and so by hit rate, I looked at players who exceeded ADP expectation by 100 or more fantasy points. There's just a, a trend line for ADP expectation. And if a player exceeded it by 100 or more fantasy points, he was dubbed a breakout. And I looked at round six through nine. And then I looked at if a, if a player was an RB2 or worse uh, on his team being drafted in that range versus a player who was the RB1 on his team. So we're talking in terms of ADP. I'm not trying to guess who the RB1 is. I'm literally saying this is the RB1 because he's the first player from his backfield being drafted. So it's by ADP. The RB1s had more than twice as good of a hit rate in terms of exceeding expectation by 100 or more points than the RB2s did. So the Kareem Hunts of the world right now, part of that RB2 group, but then you get a lot of those handcuffs and you get a lot of players who just generally... You know, don't pan out year over year. But the really interesting thing that I found is if we know these RB1s are hitting at a higher rate than the RB2s, I wonder if you can segment that a little bit. And so what I looked at was RB1s who are being drafted. So team RB1s who are being drafted in those middle rounds, round six through nine, who had a teammate drafted near them, also in the middle rounds. Uh, and then RB1s who had no teammates drafted around them. So this is the difference between, let's say, Chase Edmonds, because he has James Conner being drafted, you know, cl- close to the end of round nine, versus Michael Carter. Michael Carter being the lone Jets running back who's being drafted in those middle rounds with no running back being drafted near him. Yeah. What I found was the more ambiguous backfield, the Chase Edmonds, uh, the, you know, the Cardinals backfield this year, the 49ers backfield this year, the Broncos backfield this year, those RB1s, had an absolutely insane hit rate, really? like an insane hit rate. We had, we've had we had 17 of those instances over the last decade. Four of them have exceeded expectation by 100 or more points. It's a hit rate of over 24%, whereas the flip side, the Michael Carter situation, uh, those hit at a 6% rate. And so the majority of the RB1s who are hitting in those middle rounds are coming from these situations where multiple running backs are being drafted also in those middle rounds from these, from these same backfields. And I think that the reason for that is because we like the situations in those backfields. We just don't know who the RB1 and who the, the guy is going to be in those backfields. And so we're saying, you know what, if I don't get Chase Edmonds, I'll just get James Conner because he could be the goal line guy. He could see the early down work and he still might be good. Or I'm not going to get Trey Sermon, so I'm going to get Raheem Mostert because he's a little bit cheaper and he could end up being the guy for San Francisco. But we know that Arizona and San Francisco have two very attractive backfields in terms of what they can produce from a fantasy perspective. Whereas we're looking at Michael Carter and we're saying, we're very confident that Michael Carter is going to be the RB one on this team, but he's still being drafted in round seven. Why is that? Well, it's because the situation generally sucks. So if someone emerges from one of those backfields, it makes sense that the player from the backfield that's more attractive is the one that's hitting. And it just so happens that historically we've been very, very, very good at pinpointing who the RB one is in those backfields by ADP. And so essentially what this is telling us is draft Javante Williams, draft Travis Etienne, 
draft Trey Sermon and draft Chase Edmonds. Those four guys are the guys that you can really pinpoint this year uh, and, and hope for a league winner. Yeah, uh, that's great stuff, man. I, I, um, I think I'll take you to task on Sermon being RB1, though. I think most of it might still be that RB1. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, it's really, it's really just going by again. It's just going by ADP straight yeah. up, right? So if sermon, okay. if sermon at the end, if sermon at the end of the day is not the RB one by ADP, you know, more consensus. You know, it's it's a little bit difficult to look at like the Buccaneers right now and say I know for sure this guy's the because different ADP sources might have Rojo as the RB one and it might have Leonard Fournette as the RB one. Mm-hmm. It's really the situations where there's a, a one to two round gap where it's more clear. Which is why, you know, after doing the study, I wasn't like the highest person in the world on on Chase Edmonds. But after doing the study, I was just like, I mean, it's hard not to look at that situation and say he's probably the one that you want to be targeting in the middle rounds. Despite, I, I mean, there's downside, of course. That's why he's being drafted in the middle rounds. Um, but all of that sort of aligns. And the other thing, too, is that I, I, I looked into like round four and five as well uh, to see if, if there's a running back in round four and five in the dead zone who had a teammate drafted in the single digit rounds with them. And those running backs also hit at a higher rate than their, than the alternative. So, you know, if Travis Etienne or Javante Williams see their ADP rise a little bit, as long as their teammate is still, you know, in there, uh, in, in the single digit rounds, you should feel confident in drafting them. Hmm. Yeah. A lot of good stuff there. Um, my thing just on, from a player perspective real quick, my thing with chase is like, yeah, I think the cost is fine. Round six, round seven, um, you can kind of, in, in a lot of the teams I'm doing for best ball is like, I'm doing, you know, like I'll take one back in the first round, especially when I have like a top four or five pick. And then I literally won't touch mm-hmm. it because I just love the receivers and the quarterbacks like I yeah. talked about through that, you know, rounds two through five range. Then in round six, yeah. Edmonds is, I, I like I, I, everything you, you kind of spelled out there makes a ton of sense and I'm with you on it. But my thing with Edmonds is the touchdowns. It's like, are they going to let him score in close? Like, not only is there kind of a threat with James Conner as the bigger back is on the goal line, but Kyler Murray, nine of his yep. 11 rushing touchdowns last year were designed plays. Like, they love yep. to get Kyler uh, out in space, designing him in, you know, in space inside of the 5-10 yard line. I, I really want to be in on Chase Edmonds this year, and he was like one of those – he's one of those two or three guys I was mentioning earlier that I do like in the the, the, the dead zone, air quotes, dead zone. Yeah. Um, but the touchdown thing concerns me with him. I look, that was the exact same way that I was viewing Chase Edmonds before I did this study. And yeah. then I started thinking more about the situation because the way that I draft uh, in, in redraft is I look at each player's ADP versus, you know, their projected output and what we think they're going to do. And I try my best to say, uh, is this guy being drafted with a, a ton of assumptions attached to him? And a really good example of this, and I didn't do this. I did this last year for the Seahawks wide receivers, right? Because everyone's like, oh, it's a pass-heavy offense, or it's not a pass-heavy offense. So we're going to fade these guys or not draft them as high as they probably should be drafted, even though they're going to get a 25% target share in a Russell Wilson-led offense. We're going to get them in the fourth round, fifth round, uh, because they're going to be a run-heavy team. Well, what if they're not a run-heavy team, yeah, right? Yeah. And I didn't do that. I didn't do that enough with Stefan Diggs, unfortunately, uh, which, which was stupid. Uh, and in hindsight, it's like, yeah, like I was fine with not being as in on like Keenan Allen last year because a lot of things aligned for him, right? With Justin Herbert ended up, uh, you know, hitting and 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 things just working out. But with Stefan Diggs, it was literally like mostly a play calling thing, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that when you when you have these assumptions, a good example this year entering this year is Najee Harris, right? There's this assumption that the Steelers' offensive line is going to be absolute trash, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, 
Well, they were also absolute trash last year. Probably not going to be any worse than what they were last year. But you you have to bake in the fact that there's variance there. There's variance in offensive line play. And it's very easy for that to be a little bit better. Not only that, we know that volume is what wins. We know that volume is what's more important. And so, uh, you know, that that makes Najee Harris, to me, more of a value than than to other people. And so with Chase Edmonds and the way that I would view it, and I think you could view you could use the same logic with Austin Eckler. Uh, if Austin Eckler were to see goal line work, he could be a top three running back in fantasy football, right? But we're under the assumption that he's not going to see it. I think that that's the probable outcome, but we don't know that for sure. With Chase Edmonds, I think it's the probable outcome, but he's almost a discount Eckler from that standpoint. I'm not saying he's as good or that he's going to see the same target share or anything like that, but they, they accumulate points in a similar way. And so if we go under the assumption that Chase Edmonds is not going to score any touchdowns or that he's not going to see goal line work, if you look at his ADP, everyone else is going with that same assumption. Right. And so realistically, you could start to think about the ceiling a little bit more and say, well, if Chase Edmonds sees even a fraction of Kenyon Drake's goal line work last year, then all of a sudden he's going to pay easily pay off that ADP and, and exceed expectation by a large, large margin. So I was totally in the same boat as you, dude, like mm-hmm. five days ago. Yeah. And then I started digging into this more and I've just kind of switched with, with Chase Edmonds and I'm way more into him now. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Um we were talking, we had a big call earlier this week with the staff and we, Scott was bringing up Travis Etienne and it was kind of like a, like a, it was like a sword fight type of player with Etienne. Um, and you yeah. mentioned Etienne too, like I, Scott, let, let, let me give you the floor with Etienne because I don't think you really got to like fully go into why you're in on Etienne this year, but I have a feeling it's kind of the same line of thinking as uh, what JJ just spelled out with Chase Evans. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I agree with you guys. Like I, I'm typically trying to get my running backs in the first three rounds, maybe the fourth round. I think there's one or two guys in the fourth round right now. Uh, Etienne going in the fifth. Um, yeah. I mean, round one draft capital. I think the argument against him is, is fairly easy. It's, Hey, James Robinson was excellent last year. He averaged over 100 yards from scrimmage per game on a one win team. He's not going to go gently into that good night. Fair enough. Um, and, and, and Urban Meyer has said some really weird stuff regarding Etienne. Like, you know, there is concern that he might be some sort of positionless gadget player, or he's going to be played out of position at wide receiver. I think there is some legitimate concern there, but I, I talked to a high ranking source, uh, familiar with, with Meyer who told me basically, listen, the guy's a well-known liar, but he's brilliant. He's really smart. And I'm very confident this is going to be Etienne's back backfield at some point in the season where he becomes a true bell cow. And they're just trying to make sure he's, he's right when it comes to catching passes. And then, you know, he should be, he was, he was great last year, in which case, you know, sky is really the limit for him. But um, it, with regards to that, you know, playing him out of position, like he uh, Meyer compared him to uh, sort of the, the Percy Harvin, Curtis Samuel, who he had in college, those guys played wide receiver in the NFL, but they were running backs under Meyer. And if you look at that role, pulling up the numbers now, that was a, a super valuable role for, for fantasy. So from 2007 to 2008, Harvin averaged 24.1 fantasy points per game. Granted, it was college, but on only 26% of the team's back uh, uh, non-QB runs. And for Curtis Samuels, the same thing in 2016, 25.2 fantasy points per game on just 28% of the team's non-QB runs. Remember, targets uh, are more valuable in PPR leagues. That's where you would target an Etienne, target 
is worth 2.64 times as much as a carry. But really, this reminds me a lot of Alvin Kamara, who was a, a guy I was higher on than most in his rookie season. He is, uh, the GM, Mickey Loomis, just came out and said, hey, this is a player we coveted. We expect him to immediately fill that Reggie Bush and Darren Sproles role that we had that was so successful for us in the past. And that was a super productive role for, for fantasy. Uh, Bush in his first three seasons averaged over 16.5 fantasy points per game. Uh, Darren Sproles, uh, same thing in his first two seasons. And so I think what you're hoping for from Etienne is, you know, this sort of scat back on steroids role that Alvin Kamara has. And who knows, you know, maybe my source is right. And, you know, he, he is a, a bell cow, in which case he could be a potential league winner. Obviously, this is the the bull case argument for him. I'm not going to end up with a ton of exposure, uh, but I do think he is he is pretty mispriced. The one thing I'll say about Kamara is, you know, he was like one of the top players, if not the top back in win rate that year. I'd have to look it up in his rookie year, but he was like an 11th or 12th round pick. You know, yeah. ETN, ETN, you're getting if if everything you said is is right, and I I follow all of that logic. If, if everything you said is right, you're still getting him at a discount, but it's still like, it's not a deep, deep discount like Camara was, or even frankly, like, you know, Trey Sermon or Michael Carter are this year. I guess that's my, my one, my one thing. And Etienne usually goes before Javante Williams. And I think everything you just said can be applied to Javante Williams and then some, because the Broncos defense is much better. They should be in closer games, which leaves some more running and they have a better offensive line. Um, so I guess that's my, I've certainly had a blind spot for ETN this year, um, but I think all of the, the logic you just put out there makes makes a ton of sense. Yeah, I mean, and then again, he fits the criteria of this like ambiguous backfield, two running backs being drafted in the in the single digit rounds, and the RB one from a from an ADP perspective has typically really panned out uh, in those situations. So I, I'm definitely in on ETN. I, I think you know is urban Meyer sharp? I don't know. Like there's, there's, there's fear of like urban Meyer just not being, uh, the, the, the sharpest, uh, head coach. I mean, you, and you look at the front, I mean, the fact that they went out and got ETN in the first place kind of alludes to that too, right? It's a little bit scary, uh, that they, that they went and did that. But the fact that they did do that, you know, I was, I was really into James Robinson last year, right? Like I, I'm totally into him. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, he had a great season, um, but I was, I just can't get behind this like logic of them drafting Travis Etienne still makes James, still can allow James Robinson to be relevant. Yeah. Um, so if nothing else, I think the study that I talked about and what we're talking about here, it's like, you know, you don't necessarily have to target those RB ones, but at least fade those RB twos, yeah. you know, at least yeah. fade like the Melvin Gordons, the James Connors, the, the, uh, the, the James Robinsons. Uh, because they just don't pan out at that high of a rate. And really, you know, are you going to get a league winning season from guys who are already capped by other players who are better pass catchers in their backfield? Yeah. Um, and that, that's really the, you know, maybe Melvin Gordon aside, we don't know for sure, but even still, I think Javante Williams is a great uh, three down back. So uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's very interesting, but I I'm in on ETN as well um, based on the study, based on the fact that he has the, the capital and, and what we've seen with first round running backs uh, historically. And he was just a freaking good prospect too. Yeah. Yeah. All true. Um, yeah. All true. I, I'm with you on Javante too, because he's such a good pass blocker. And I think that's going to earn yeah. snaps, uh, snaps early on. ETN wasn't so much, but I don't really know if that matters for him. Cause he, in theory, if he's going to be on the field and passing downs, he's going to be running a route on like 90% of those snaps or something. But uh, yeah, uh, man, this was really, really great uh, discussion about the running backs. Um, before we get out of here, 
uh, I have to ask you who your favorite late round quarterback is this year. And I need you to tell me why it's Trey Lance. Yeah, man. You know, I did the Scott Fishbowl. I got both Justin Fields and Trey Lance, and that yes. is my QB1 and QB2. Um, yes. I, I mean, my, my league was just so, so into these early round quarterbacks, so I just was pivoting. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm going to go for the upside with the rushing. I think Trey Lance is it. Uh, and, and I'm also cool that, you know, like I said earlier, I think there's like these like pockets throughout your draft. Like if I'm targeting those, those, uh, those elite guys, you know, I'm just looking at the bottom of that tier. I love Russell Wilson this year. So he's a guy that I'm targeting a lot. Uh, and then you can go with Jalen hurts if you want to. And then I love Ryan Tannehill this year, uh, for obvious reasons. And then, uh, if I'm not getting those guys, I'm typically going to go after one of these rookie quarterbacks. I think that, you know, last year was the year of the middle round quarterback. I think this year could be the year of the rookie quarterback. Damn. Love that. Love that. Um, we've been talking Trey Lance on the podcast every single week. So just keep, yeah. keep the hype machine rolling, man. I've been, I've been all in on Lance. Uh, but this is awesome, man. This was awesome. Uh, so cool to get back into uh, a reunion. This was way too long in the making. We needed to do this years ago, but uh, JJ, thank you so much for your time, man. Um, anything you want to like plug or shout out you have coming up, like with training camp around the corner, like what, anything you have going on, like, uh, content wise, like what, uh, what's coming up for the 2021 season for you? Yeah. So I, you know, the late round podcast is where I put most of my effort these days. So, uh, you know, I did the breakout running back episode this past Monday. Uh, I'll be doing a wide receiver one next week and then a tight end one the week after that, digging into some trends. There's a cool trend that I found with wide receivers, um, that I'll, that I'll talk about on there. Uh, and then, yeah, I mean, that's, that's really it. You know, the late round podcast can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. Dope. Yeah, definitely. If you're not listening to that, definitely check out JJ's podcast. It's always uh, what I always appreciate about it. Appreciate about it is like you're not wasting anybody's time. You go in there and you get yeah. straight to it, and it's 15 to 20 minutes because my attention span uh, at this point is absolute trash. So I always appreciate <laughs> that. But uh, yeah, thank you again, man, for coming on. We'll have to uh, we'll have to run it back. You know, maybe sometime next off season where we can get in, you know have some more free time and and get to it. But um, yeah, Swamp Rats, thanks for listening. Uh, we'll be back next week with another guest, chopping it up as we uh, get a couple, we're a couple weeks away from training camp. It's unbelievable. Um, from my perspective, this year is just completely flown by. I can't believe it's already the 15th. But uh, again, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, for JJ, thanks again. Scott, I'm Graham. We'll catch you next time. Welcome to Fantasy Points Radio. We bring to you... Barfield and Barrett. All of these, all of these parents say hella embarrassed. Like, why did they air it? But all of these errors and Buffett and Barry, you cannot compare it. The kings of this era, there should be a tariff on all of this knowledge. I follow regardless and straight to the point like a crow. Popping and coming is losing my oxygen takes that they got made me go. Whoa, so what's a swamp rat gotta do? I'm chasing all of this cheese, even if my competition grew. Deuces to the mean, your boy is never regressing. Off season through the season, 365, 247, and it's one for the money, two bars on the show. Stay ready, swamp rats, let's go It's the fantasy points, ain't no raggedy joint They mad at me scoring points, but then they glad that they join One for the money, two bars on the show The boys stay ready, swamp rats, let's go It's the fantasy points, ain't no raggedy joint They mad at me scoring points, but then they glad that they join See?